My name's Mike. Now, for those who don't know me, I'm the director of growth groups here. And I get to preach today on love. Now, Eric preached last week, and there was something at the beginning of his message that I really think helps us today. He was talking about how Christmas often exposes the gap between what we feel like we want and what we often need, right? He was talking about he wanted a guitar, and he got socks for the frigid Chicago winter, and he was disappointed, right? And I think this is so important when we talk about love, because we often get so caught up in an expression of love that we feel like we need, that we feel like will complete us, and we get blinders on for it, right? And the entire time, we miss out on a type of love that's maybe already there, maybe one that we need, that will help us. I hope I'm not the only one who has had that happen in their life. And in terms of gifts for Christmas, it actually is a perfect analogy, and it's quite cliche, because I often got so focused on a gift as a child that I wanted, the thing that was going to revolutionary, like, my entire childhood, right? My youth would never be the same if I could just get this. And the season would come and pass, and I would get it, but I'd actually miss out on all the people who came during the season, right? And some of those people aren't with me anymore. And some of those people helped me through hard times, and I can't even remember what those gifts even were at this point in my life. It's what I wanted, but not what I needed. And this is going to play a big role when we talk about love in the Bible. But before we do, flashback two weeks ago when Eric told me that I was going to get to preach on love, and I was like, easy peasy. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that shows up in the Bible once or twice. So I did what every seminarian does when I have to do a deep dive into Scripture. I got on Google, and I said, verses in the Bible about love. (laughs) And I just knew my sermon was going to jump out to me. You run into some issues. Have you ever studied the Bible for any length of time? The first one, when we talk about love, is quantity. So there are between 300 and 600 verses in your Bible depending on your translation, that mention the word love. And I'm going to read every single one of them to you today. (laughs) The bigger issue is that the English language is trash. (laughs) At least when it comes to the theme of love in the Bible. You see, there are many different types of love in our life, right? And Greek goes, whoa, that's super important. And Greek, ancient Greek was what the New Testament was written in. And they go, so let's do different words for each one so we know what we're talking about here. And English looks at the same problem and goes, ah, forget about it. We'll call them all just love. They'll figure it out. So I use the same word to talk about how I feel about my wife that I do for how much I love tacos. (laughs) Which is problematic because if I love both in the same way, I am a very messed up person. (laughs) And this is a cry for help. So we have to know what kind of love we're talking about when we read a verse in the Bible, or we might miss the point. And I can't cover them all today. I'm sorry. I'm not actually going to do that. You're welcome. So we're just going to focus on one type of love, one expression of love in Scripture. And it's the one that I think is most associated with Advent, because it's the one about how God loves the world and humanity. 
And it's especially the one that God shows by sending us Jesus Christ, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And it's this phrase, agape, or agape love, as I will refer to it today, just to make sure you guys don't forget it's about love. And we're going to explore this today because it's very important to the Bible. Now, I'm actually going to rely on a section from this, a series of Jesus' teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. It's from the Gospel of Matthew, which is a story about Jesus' life. And it's this three-chapter sermon that Jesus gives on what does it look like to live a life in response to what God's doing in the world, the kingdom of God, right? What does a transformed life look like? And in this message, Jesus explores what agape love looks like. And he does so in a very interesting way. Now, to start on it, we're actually going to pull a Pulp Fiction. We're going to start at the end. We're going to come back to the beginning. And then we're going to work our way there. Okay? And that's because the inverse of this passage really directs how Jesus wants to teach us about agape love. So it starts, we're going to start, in five, Matthew 5, 48. It says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's this word perfect that I want us to hone in on in terms of how Jesus is going to direct his teaching. You see, this is a Greek word, teleos. And it, it usually means to become like what we were intended to be completely, right? It means to completely embody something without anything else being needed. So it's important here at E3 because it has a lot to do with maturing into the people God intended us to be discipleship. But in this verse, I want you to understand that God is going to end his teaching on agape love by pointing to the Father and saying that God embodies this agape love completely, totally, perfectly, without anything else being needed. And so he's going to say, if you want to know what agape love looks like, look at how God loves. Follow me? So let's see how Jesus builds to that point. In Matthew 5, 43, we begin. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is actually a formula that Jesus uses throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we saw it in our last series when we went through the Ten Commandments. What Jesus does is he says, you have heard that it was said... And then he refers to an Old Testament passage or the law. And then he goes, but I tell you, and then he deepens it, right? He expands upon it. He gets to what it was intended to teach us. So he says, for example, you have heard that it was said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, don't even hate a brother or sister, right? Because hate's at the root of murder. So he takes it deeper, he expands it. And he does so here. You see, he's voting or he's quoting a passage from Leviticus 19, and he's expanding on it, okay? And this is a passage from a list of rules of what it looks like for, for God's people to live in community, but he actually does something incredibly unique here. Does anyone see a difference between what Jesus says and the verse he's quoting? You guys all failed. No. <laughs> he never, he says, and hate your enemy, but that is not found in the verse he's citing, right? It just says, love your neighbor. Now, Jesus changes it. And the question is, why? And I call it sassy Jesus. <laughs> you see, 
What Jesus is doing here is he's actually throwing his hat into the ring of an ongoing debate in the first century Judaic context. And that debate was over this term neighbor. In spe- or more specifically, who is my neighbor? Because who your neighbor is determines who you can seek revenge against, who you can hold a grudge against. More importantly, who do I have to love, right? So, man, she's ahead of me. Um, so it's important for the Israelites because they're trying to figure out who do I have to love? And we go, well, that's pretty simple. It's probably other Israelites, but there's a problem. Leviticus 19.34, a few verses later, says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as native-born. Love them as yourself. So we today are like, that's no big deal. Okay, cool. The other foreigners living amongst the Israelites, love them too. That seems like a very godly kind thing to do. Who knows why this was a huge problem for an Israelite in the first century? A little thing called the Roman Empire. So you see, Israelite had been conquered for the last 600-something years by a, a succession of empires. And it was currently the Romans, and they were occupying Israel, and the Romans' favorite pastime was crucifying people. They did it like we give away gifts. It's obviously not as fun. So the question at play in this verse is not, who is my neighbor? It's, are the Romans my neighbor? And if the Romans are my neighbor, do I have to not get revenge against them? Do I have to not retaliate against them? Do I have to not hold grudges against them? Do I have to love the Romans? Which should be shocking, right, if you are in Jesus' audience. And I also want you to notice that when he cites this in Matthew, he's not just saying that they're deepening, or he's not just deepening the verse he's teaching on. He is actually implying that he's totally correcting a teaching that they have heard from this verse. He is not just saying your understanding of neighbor is too shallow. He is saying you have been taught it in such a way that has added to the law of God. And it hasn't just added to the law of God, it has added the complete opposite thing. God intended this law to teach you to love your neighbor, and you taught it in a way that taught people to hate their enemy. It's not just, let me expand on this a little bit. It is, you have missed the point entirely. And what Jesus does is actually quite radical because he expands the concept of neighbor beyond anything anyone in his time would have done. He says, think about the person that you hate most in this world and expand your word neighbor to include them. Oh, and then love them. Do not take revenge against them. Do not hold grudges. He says in Matthew 5, He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And for icing on the cake, Jesus actually ends this sentence with, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, which is Jesus' not-so-subtle way of saying, because this is how God loves. And if you want to be like God, got to do it too. So we are probably like Jesus' audience, We're like, no way that God includes the Romans in his understanding of neighbor or love, right? That seems pretty tough for us. Well, Jesus expected you might think that. 
So he says, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And this is a total ninja move by Jesus. That's a biblical term. And what he does is he basically says, oh, you don't believe me, do you? Well, why don't you take, away, take a look at how God's world works? He says, you believe God created the world, right? Well, then how it works tells you something about God. And he goes, look at how the rain falls on crops, which in an agricultural society was considered God's blessing, right? If you do not get rain, you do not have food for that year. So God's blessing comes in the rain. He says, look at the, the way that the sun rises and sets another day on earth. Are either of these things given to people based on merit? Is it, are you driving by someone's crop and it's flourishing and the other one's not? You're like, that guy's good. That guy's bad. Can you know that? No. God pours out his blessing regardless of any system of merit. That's what Jesus points to as his evidence. And neither is dependent on how we feel about somebody. He says God does it for everybody always. Now, if you are anything like me, and I consider myself just like the Israelites, this is a tough pill to swallow, right? How can God tell me to feel good about the Romans? How can God tell me to feel love about the terrorist, the murderer, the oppressor? How, God? Am I supposed to feel love for them like I feel for my wife? Like I feel for tacos? We struggle with this precisely because English is not a very good language for these concepts, and our culture gets in the way too. Let me walk through that. You see, there was a book in 2015 called Modern Romance. It was written by a comedian Aziz Ansari and a sociologist named Eric Kleinberg. And it basically walks through how do different cultures engage the concept of love? And it found a huge divide between many Eastern and Western cultures. In the West, love is primarily a feeling of affection. It is an emotion. It is a desire for another person, right? It is also something that we consider ourselves passive to. We talk about falling in love. It happens to us, right? How many people talk about the first time they found the love of their life and they're just like, I couldn't help it. I just fell in love. You guys following me? Checks out. It's warm and fuzzy feelings. In the East, it is far more understood primarily as a commitment and a choice. It is the commitment to choose another person and their good and to keep choosing them over and over and over again. It is active. It is loyalty. It is something that we, we do rather than something that happens to us. We look at a person and says, I am going to commit to you. And from that commitment will flow feelings of affection. And this seems extremely cold to us in the West, right? Because it just isn't our mode of understanding what love is. But how many of you have had your strongest relationships when they're built only on how you feel about the person on a given day? How many of you would say that your most lasting commitments to another person are based entirely on how you feel about them? Am I the only one? 
My feelings are fickle. My feelings are often based on a mix between my past experience and what I want from a given situation. And thus they change back and forth with the waves, right? So we struggle to understand what Jesus is getting at here because we're using the wrong type of love. There are verses in the Bible that affirm feeling affection for one another. That is good. Do that. I'm not saying that you can't do that. But agape is far more about the commitment orientation. It is far more a worldview. It's about seeing human beings as having inherent value. And when you look at them based on that value, you choose to seek their good regardless of your standards for them, what you think their character is, or how they respond. It is a choice to seek blessing no matter what, simply because a human being is valuable. Agape love is based on a commitment to seek the good of another person regardless of their perceived character or response. The rain falls on everyone. And Jesus points to God and says, if you want to know what this looks like perfectly, teleos, look at God, right? He says, God looks at his creation. He looks at humanity and he chooses faithfully to seek their good and their blessing regardless of how they respond to him. And thus, it can include the enemy because Agape love does not even know what the word enemy means. It has extended the word neighbor to include everybody. Always. It is teleos because it lacks nothing short of completeness. Everybody and everything fits inside it. And this is radical, right? We often in the church hear love too much that we forget how radical this even is, how explosive this is to our worldview, to who we are. You see, the early church got it, and they understood that when you understand this thing correctly, it blows up everything, and it changes you in response to it, right? Paul, in our Advent verse today, in verse 9, says, This is my prayer that your love abound with what? More and more knowledge and depth of insight. And then what comes from it? When we get this agape love thing right, what flows from us? Discernment, joy, partnership, good works, fruit of righteousness, prayer for others. What these verses are getting at is simply this. If you have come to truly understand what agape's, agape love means for you, then you are going to start seeing other human beings in the same way that God sees you. And the fruit of it will be blessing, just like God blesses. And Jesus gets at the same thing in verse 46 and 47. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. And like the Christmas gifts, what Jesus is getting at is the love that we so often want isn't the one that humanity often needs. 
You see, he looks at the modes that we normally love in, that we want to love in, that we find easy for us to say yes to. And he says they're too tribal. They're too, they're too exclusionary. They're too small for God. They're not what humanity needs because they are too easy. He says it is easy to feel love and show compassion for people who do the same for us. He says, look at the tax collectors, which by the way, if you understand the context, tax collectors were Israelites who betrayed their own people and were extorting their own people for the Romans. So he says, think of the person you would call a traitor. Even that person can love in a quid pro quo kind of way. He says, it is too easy to feel and show compassion to people who are like us, to our own tribe. He says even the pagans treat or greet each other, right? Pagan, if you wanted to know, includes the Romans in this context. So he is saying even that person that you consider a murderer, even the oppressor, the Romans, even they can love like you do if all you do is love tribalism. That tribalism is not enough. And it's not what humanity needs. And what this so often gets at is that Jesus is throwing down a gauntlet. He says, even those people that you think are most wicked, most murderous, most evil, most unworthy of love can love to the standards that you set for yourself when you say love is about loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. And it's just not enough for God. And he ends, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is clear. God loves in this agape way, totally, completely, beyond any barrier that we create as human beings. And if we want to resemble him, then we better resemble how he loves and how he defines the word neighbor as well. And this is tough stuff. And I want to end with the question that some may be asking, why does this matter? What good does it do? And the first thing I would tell you is that it matters because God tells us it's the only way we can heal, restore, and reconcile human beings in a broken world. The story of the Bible is that God looks at brokenness, woundedness, separation, evil, and he says yes to healing it by extending love. That is the story of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the story of the end of the exile and the return. That is the story of slaves being set free from Egypt. I can tell you that we so often hear that God deals with these things in this way and we go, God, that may work great for you, but in this world, that's naive. You sound like a sucker because in this world, that's how you get burned and that's not how it works. And we act like our pessimism excuses us from loving like he does. I can tell you from experience in my own life that I have only overcome my brokenness when someone has extended me agape love, compassion, grace, unmerited favor. 
love. There's a movie that captures this perfectly. It's called Goodwill Hunting, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Everyone loves it. See, I picked the right movies. Eric never picks the right movies. <laughs> it's, about, it's about a guy who is a math genius, and he gets discovered at MIT, but there's only one problem. He's not what we expect. He's not a student. He's a janitor. He has no education. He's an orphan. He was in foster care. Oh, and by the way, he's incredibly violent. He's actually discovered after he's been arrested for getting into a brawl, and he is told by the judge, you have 15 years in jail, or you can go do math at MIT with this professor who found you and get counseling. And it's the counseling arc that I want to focus on today. You see, he goes to all these counselors, and he just blows them up. He's too smart. He, he, he got, they come to try to help him, and he finds out their weakness, and like, ah, gets them. It's usually really funny. You, should, you shouldn't laugh at it. It's pretty mean. But he blows up every single one of them, right? And he, he, he just won't accept help. And he finally gets to the last one willing to meet with him. It's played by Robin Williams. And he does the exact same thing. He notices very quickly that this guy has a wound as far as his wife is concerned. And he pokes it, and he pokes it, and he pokes it until Robin Williams blows up and kicks him out. And you're like, well, I guess Will's going back to jail. Good luck, bud. You're your own worst enemy, right? Except for Robin Williams chooses to meet with him again. And that's the scene I want to watch. So we're going to run it and come back. What's this? The taste is choice moment between guys. This is really nice. You got to think for swans. Is this like a fetish? It's something like maybe we need to devote some time to. I thought about what you said to me the other day about my painting. Uh, stayed up half the night thinking about it. Something occurred to me. I fell into a deep, peaceful sleep and I haven't thought about you since. You know what occurred to me? No. You're just a kid. You don't have the faintest idea of what you're talking about. Why, thank you. It's all right. You've never been out of Boston. Nope. If I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo. I know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. Seen that. If I ask you about women, Probably give me a silver, say your personal favorites. You may have even been laid a few times. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. When I ask you about war, you probably uh, throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watch him gasp his last breath looking to you for help. I ask you about love. Probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. 
known someone that could level you with her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. Who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel. To have that love for her be there forever. Through anything. Through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hand, because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss, because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. Completely dethr dethrones him, right? I mean, lays him asunder. All of his fears, defense mechanisms. And then he just deals like the fatal blow. And he's left silent for the first time in the film. And for many of us, this is where our love ends. Quid pro quo, pain for pain, wound for wound. You hurt me, I hurt you back, but this time with a bigger weapon. But Robin Williams' character doesn't end there. I would have played the rest of the clip, but there are some choice words. It's from Boston. <laughs> he says, if all you're going to show me is your fake exterior, then I cannot help you. But, and I want this next part to be quoted exactly. He says, but, unless you want to talk about you, who you are, then I'm fascinated. I'm all in, but you don't want to do that, do you? You're terrified of what you might say or what you might find. And then the great last line of the film or in the scene, your move, chief. He looks at the person that he would call enemy, we should call enemy by human nature, and he says, let me know you, let me help you, let me love you. I am all in. Now read that quote and understand that that's what God says to you. And in response, he says, think of the person in your life who is the quote-unquote enemy. What would it mean to say that to them? He looks into the face of what we would call evil, and he extends compassion if you know the movie, what follows is a story of growth, of transformation, of redemption, of healing. You see all those things we hate about Will. They come from the fact that he was abused viciously by every parent he had ever had in his life. Every foster parent, everywhere he had ever been as a child, violence followed him. What we call evil was woundedness. And it was this conversation a man in a compassionate relationship willing to say yes to him that starts him on the journey of peace. But it's not just this conversation. It's what's at the root of this conversation. It is a person who is willing to receive all of someone's defense mechanisms and still extend compassion. It is a person who is willing to see the ugliness that pours out of a human being's wound and to extend mercy because he sees potential. It is a person who is willing to look at an enemy and see humanity. 
It's a person who is willing to look at all that a person has done, all that they've hurt, all the pain in their life, and he's willing to say yes to him. That is agape love, and it changes everything. And I want to close with perhaps the most important point. Do you believe that this is how God sees you? With a real depth of insight. Do you believe that God gazes on you, that he sees everything you've done, every wound you have, every person you've wounded? He still says yes with a compassionate gaze and love. Do you believe God says, I am all in if you will show me who you are? Do you believe that an infinite God loves you infinitely. Because Paul is right. When we fully understand this, when we fully understand what it means for us, it changes everything and it will heal you and it will set you free. And it's right there. So I'm going to end quoting the wise Robin Williams. Your move, chief. <laughs>